So the question we are looking at this morning comes in many forms. In many ways, this question gets raised. And really, it is this. I'm I'm giving it a, a banner header today. So I'm lumping all questions around sex and sexuality into this heading. Why does God care who I sleep with? As I said, I think that is a huge objection to the Christian faith in our culture today. Why does God care who I sleep with? As Mark and Nigel have said over their weeks, the past couple of weeks, we've taken the material from King's Church in Eastbourne, thanks to Andrew Wilson and the team down there. And on their website, as they were doing this series themselves, they um, invited the wider community to post objections against the Christian faith. And this was probably the question that got most objections to the Christian faith. So the, most of the posts on the website around this big objection series for them were centered around the area of sex and sexuality. I'm just going to read a couple of the um, objections they received just to help us, just to help set for us the, the challenge that people feel around this Area. So the first one was this, why is the church against same-sex relationships? People cannot help how they are born. The church accepts people with disabilities, so why not gay people? People can't help how they're born. Some people born with disabilities or in certain situations the church accepts and loves them. Why not people who are gay? Somebody else said this, I'm gay. It's not something I've tried to become, but it's who I am. It's how I was made. Why should I not be allowed to live in a loving relationship with another man? I am also a Christian, but I am living a lie at church as I will be treated as an outcast if I'm found out. So this person is caught right in the tension of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and being gay at the same time and are saying, I'm fearful of the response of the church. Richard Dawkins um, was debating John Lennox in Oxford a few years ago on the subject of has science buried God. And Richard Dawkins very helpfully gave a, an encapsulating um, fra- a sentence that he shared, which kind of brings all of the objections in this area together. And he simply said this, this is paraphrased, you could possibly persuade me that there was some kind of creative force in the universe who created all things. But that is fundamentally and radically incompatible with the sort of God who cares about sin. The sort of God who cares about what you do with your genitals. The sort of God who has the slightest interest in your private thoughts and wickedness and things like that. A God who is grand enough to make the universe and everything in it isn't going to care about what you are thinking and about your sin and stuff like that. So you could possibly persuade me there's a God who made everything. But that God is not the kind of God that cares what you do with your genitals, is Richard Dawkins' pushback. My working title for this preach was, Why Does God Care What I Do With My Genitals? But I just thought the word genitals up there (laughs) on the screen might cause many of you to perspire and you end up doing a word game. Does anybody ever do that, where you try and make as many words as you can out of a word like genitals and... Just so you don't sweat too much. Right, moving on. So it's a challenging list of objections to the Christian faith, which are real objections that people really do have and hold against the Christian faith. 
For some people, this is the issue that stops them becoming followers of Jesus. Okay, this is a real issue. This isn't just, it's not just an emotional issue. There's an intellectual issue here for people. There's a, there's a battling that people are fighting. And if you like, in, in the broad sweep of arguments that come around this area of why does God care who I sleep with, the arguments that come, there are really two categories of objection we find. The first is that, why does God care who I sleep with? And that will be what we major on in just a moment. And the second is, forget what God thinks. I'm just annoyed at how Christians treat people who are gay. That is a very common objection also. Christians' attitudes to gay people. So on that second objection, let me quickly just make a, very, a couple of quick points. To say this, the church has often got its response and attitude wrong to people who are gay. We've often fumbled the ball historically on this one. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been hurt even by gateway. And that would say, you would say, yeah, that's been my experience. I've, I've been rejected and hurt by the local church on this issue. I am sorry to say that as Christians, we do say things and do things that at times are awful and horrible. If you want proof of that, listen to Mark's talk on hypocrisy and Christians being judgmental from last week. Christians often get things very wrong. And I just want to say on behalf of us as a church and myself and us as a team, if we have ever If that has ever happened to you as a result of your engagement and being part of this community here, then I am genuinely sorry. Our heart is not to hurt people or push people away or make people feel like an outcast. We want to be a church that loves and welcomes all people. Okay, I just want to be completely upfront with that. We sometimes get this wrong. Our understanding of how to serve people well on this issue, we can easily fumble the ball on this one. Second thing to say on Christian's Um, attitude and response to people who are gay is simply to say this. There are a lot of gay people, and you might know or you might not know, some within Gateway Church and others in other Christian communities who have a very different story to tell of their experience of what it means to, how they found it having same-sex attraction and being part of a local church community. So not every objection around this will come in terms of, I've been hurt. There are others who tell a different story, who would say, I I came into a local church and I was welcomed and received and loved and affirmed and accepted, and I'm gay. But some people's story is vastly different. And just for a moment, I'd love for us to watch a a short four-minute video of a guy called Sam Albury, who leads a church in Maidenhead. And Sam's story is, is that, really. It's one of same-sex attraction, but he says, when I've encountered the biblical teaching and the local church, my experience has been one that is incredibly positive. So can we just play the video, guys? Thank you. Sam Alberry, I live and work in Maidenhead, and I'm a church pastor. I'm a Christian because I know that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the dead, that there's good reasons for for believing those things. I'm a Christian because the message of Jesus makes far more sense of of who we are as people and the way the world is than anything else I've ever come across. The church has been great with my whole issue of of same-sex attraction. Certainly the church I'm a a member of uh, have been supportive, they've been an encouragement, people are are wanting to, to be a good friend. And I've also appreciated that it's not defined 
how they see me. It's not the lens through which they view me. So they, they've been great. I've not had any experience of Christians getting angry or rejecting me because of it. Most people haven't really battered an eyelid and have just sort of thought, well, we've all got our own issues. This is one of yours. I hope experiencing same-sex attraction, having to kind of wrestle with it, I hope it's made me a more empathetic character than I would have been otherwise. It's not always been easy, but I think going through that has helped me, I hope to be a bit more patient with other people, to be a bit more understanding, I hope a bit more compassionate than I would have been. Being single actually has been a, a real blessing. It, it's given me opportunities to do things I wouldn't have probably got around to doing if I was married or had children. And it's given me a, a capacity for friendship that I don't think I would otherwise have. And it, it means a lot to me to be able to have a wide range of friends and to be able to, I hope, be a good friend to others. Having same-sex attraction isn't always easy. Obviously, I'm experiencing desires that I don't want to have, and that is, at times, can be very, very painful. Uh, it can be quite frustrating. Um, there are times when it's made some friendships a bit tricky. And there are times, obviously, when, when singleness isn't much fun either. All the, the sort of opportunities and advantages of it, there are times when it would be nice to have my own family. I'm convinced what, what the Bible says on this issue is good because I'm convinced God is good. I'm convinced God is good because actually Jesus has shown his goodness to me in his, his death and resurrection. I see the goodness of his, his words in, in so many areas of, of life. The one who, who made me and knows me better than I know myself is going to know what's good for me. The very best thing that God can do for anyone is to give them life in his son. And the Christian life is all about Jesus. And for as long as God is offering a relationship with Christ to anyone, he is not anti them. Uh, there are things God calls all of us to, to turn away from. There are things in, in all of our lives that we need to, uh, to rethink and to, to kind of give over to God. But actually knowing Jesus is, is what it is all about. And that is the greatest gift God can give us. And as long as that gift is being offered, and it is, God cannot truly be said to be anti-anyone. One of the things Jesus says that, that most, I guess, encourages me in this whole area, and I, I hope would encourage others in other areas too, is that Jesus said on one occasion that, that anyone who leaves uh, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and homes and other things for him and for the sake of the gospel, even in this life, will receive a hundredfold in return. So although we have to give things up, to be Christian, although we have to turn away from certain things, leave certain things behind. Actually, we, we always, even in this life, receive far more back from Jesus than we ever give for him. And so, although there'll be certain kinds of relationships I'm, I'm not going to enter into as a Christian, um, I've received back from Jesus a whole wonderful other set of relationships. Um, within the, you know, being part of a Christian community, being part of a church family. Um, and so it's, it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. Isn't that so helpful? That's Sam's story. First um, heard him sharing that at New Day and just found it so helpful that he's able to 
have such a positive experience of biblical teaching and the church community while wrestling in himself the issue of same-sex attraction. It's fascinating. I was just reflecting that how far in culture this area has shifted. So when I was younger, this, the area of sexuality wasn't the debate. And it wasn't the thing that was raised when you had the sex talk. But now at New Day, it's top of the agenda. It's top headline, if you like, sex and sexuality. It's what our young people in schools and colleges and universities are, are grappling with. My friends are gay and I love them, and yet I see a challenge that the Bible comes and challenges lifestyle. And my friends are all happy to sleep together with whoever, and the Bible comes and challenges that lifestyle. And it's a very real challenge that we need to grapple with well. So that was Sam's story. That's not true of everybody's experience, but it's nonetheless true for many people who are in churches today. So Christians get things horribly wrong. However, that's not everybody's story. And I just want to say, when you came through the door this morning, I genuinely hope that you weren't asked on your way in, before you come and worship, who are you sleeping with? Tell us, and then we'll let you in. I would be upset and shocked if that was the question that was asked as you came through the doors, because Jesus made it very clear that as Christians, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And so, in actual fact, far from being asked that question before we show you love, the posture of the Christian is to be welcoming and loving towards people of all kinds of backgrounds, cultures, orientations, life circumstances. We have to be a loving, welcoming community. And I know for a fact that even in this room that will cause Christians to find that hard. That would be a struggle. That there's Hopefully this morning we'll push both ways on our attitudes as followers of Jesus and also for those of you who aren't following him, hopefully there'll be buttons that'll be pushed this morning to serve you. So before we get into the question of why does God care who I sleep with, let me make this very clear. It's so important I say this, that regardless of who you're sleeping with, regardless of your sexuality, Regardless of whatever mess you've made of your life in the area of sex and sexuality, let me just make this so clear to you that God loves you. Okay, it's not sort yourself out in this and then God will love you. No, he loves you. And therefore, we love you too. And I love you. And that's the attitude of us here at Gateway. Okay, so God loves you. That's so important that we get that right. The other question, though, the, our question for the, this morning, which kind of encapsulates everything, if you like. So why does God care who I sleep with? That's a very real question, as we've said. And I think to start with, it's helpful to recognize that even within the question, there is an assumed understanding that, in actual fact, God does care who I sleep with. It's not just an ethereal question that, that God, if he's real actually does care about what I do with my body and who I share my body with. It's not a very popular idea in our culture. Our culture recoils at this idea that God cares and that God might have something to say on this, as we'll see in a moment. But as Sam said in that video there, that the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ made human beings to have sex in one context and one context Only, And that is one man and one woman in the place of marriage. 
Okay, that is quite simply what the Bible says about sex. Sex is to happen within marriage between one man, a husband, and one woman, a wife. That's the only context that the Bible says this is where sex is permissible. No other parties, no other partners, no exceptions. One could try and hide that from you. One could try and hide from that and say, well, the Bible did talk about it like that 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years of, of history later, and look, we, just culture's different, so the Bible isn't in step, it's, it's not relevant on this area of human life, so actually it's okay. One could go down that route, but in actual fact, as Christians, we believe the Bible is the word of God, and God is unchanging, therefore his word is unchanging, therefore this has not changed, this area of what is sex, and where is it okay to be used. That therefore means that there are a whole range of areas in life where sex is not permissible. Let me give you a few examples. It means that men can't have sex with women that they're not married to. It means that men can't have sex with other men. It means that men can't have sex with women that are married to other men. It means that women can't have sex with men that they're not married to. Women can't have sex with other women. And women can't have sex with other men that are married to other women. Not only that, but it means that men and women can't have sex with children or unconsenting adults or animals or whatever else is listed, if you like, as not a husband and wife in the context of marriage. And so the Bible does place restrictions on the place of sex and where it is to be used. It does, in effect, communicate a lot right through the Bible. Not just some parts of it, right through the Bible and through 2,000 years of Christian writing. Read Christian writing from the last 2,000 years. You will see that the Bible says sexually there are many off-limits for the Christian. But the reality is that most of us, if not all of us in this church, have sinned sexually in some way or another. I'm pretty sure that if we did a survey and everybody was honest that most of us would find ourselves saying that, yes, at some point I have, with either another guy or another girl of the opposite sex or the same sex, conducted myself in a way that doesn't honor that standard that God set for sex. I've fallen short of God's standard, or as the Bible calls it, I've sinned in the area of sexuality. And the reason for that is because In fact, because of sin and because of the fall and how that's affected life, every area of us as human beings has been broken. There's not one area of our lives where you can say, I am holy in that area. So we are all, in fact, broken sexually. We're all in need of restoration and being made new in the image of God in the area of sex. The good news is, though, and I'm not saying it's you guys that have and I haven't. By the way, my story is, when I was 17, I got my girlfriend pregnant while we were doing A-levels. Who's Emma, by the way. I sin sexually. I battle with sexual temptation still. This is a real thing. But the reality is, if you ask people in this church, and if, if we tell one another our story, we'll, we will say, yeah, do you know what? I have fallen in that area. I've fallen short of God's expected and required standard of what life in, sexual, in a sexual context looks like, but I have also encountered a God of amazing grace who loves to forgive and restore and, and, and wrap his arms around and say, I love you, I love you, go again, go again. God's 
amazing, unending grace. And that would be many people in this room. That would be our story. If God is a God who loves to restore and heal and set free. So, listen, if you're struggling in this area or you say, well, I'm not just struggling. This is how I enjoy life. I want to say to you that actually sexual sin doesn't keep you from being a follower of Jesus. God's grace is bigger. His work on the cross goes further and is more amazing. But God nonetheless does make it very clear, let me be really clear on this, throughout the Bible that the context of sex is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, which is a challenge. And so when people say, why does God care who I sleep with? It is true that, in fact, that assumed question, God does care, is real. And from the Christian perspective, we would say that is true. I just want to, for a moment, share three simple steps to help us look behind this question, engage with it, and hopefully get some good answers that serve us well. So, three steps to help us engage with why does God care who I sleep with? Step one. Why does God care about who I sleep with? Well, in actual fact, everyone cares who people sleep with. We all care. Everybody, not just in church, but in society, we all care who people sleep with. We all have limits as to what is acceptable and not acceptable. If we were to do a survey in here or out in the town, we would find that people would say, this is permissible and that is not permissible. Whether people are Christians or not, actually that isn't the point with this. People have limits on what is acceptable, what is right and wrong in regards to sex. So, for example, as a married guy, if I was to go and have sex with somebody else and cheat on Emma, most people in society, if surveys are to be believed, not just Christians, most people in society would say, that's wrong, that's unacceptable, let alone if I was to have sex with somebody else's wife or or three other people's wives or a 13-year-old girl or a 13-year-old boy. Society would have parameters around those things that says, that is wrong. Just look at the news at the moment. And the way that investigations and papers, reports are being written on celebrities who have molested children over the last decades. So that's society saying, not just Christians, society is saying, no, there are certain things where sex is acceptable and sex is unacceptable. So everybody has areas that sex can be used and sex can't. So my question is, if that's true of us, that we all care about the context that sex can be used... Why would God not care? There was a survey recently that was a study of sexual attitudes in Britain over the last generation. And it shows that although there's been this landslide of, of um, sexuality towards people saying it's okay to be gay and lesbian in society, we accept it, we not only accept it, we applaud it and uphold it. Although, although that would be the large swathe of society These days, in actual fact, the studies show that moral attitudes towards sex in the UK have risen in the last 20 years, which I find is fascinating. That people do have this on their radar as something that's important. But I just want to put to you that the question isn't so much, why does God care about sex at all? The question should rather be, why is God's view of what sex is so different from our view of what sex is? Why does God have such a different understanding and expectation of how sex is to be used as opposed to society 
at large. His parameters are different from ours. That's the bigger challenge, if you like, which leads me on to step number two. So the first one was to say everybody cares about where sex can and can't be used. God's no different. The second one is to say if there is a God and he has a timeless ethical standard, you would kind of expect it that in every civilization, every culture, there would be some areas of that culture that conflict with and are challenged by that ethical standard of God. Just look at cultures across the world today, and most cultures collide at, in some areas around morality and ethics, not just sexual ethics, morality and ethics at large around what is right and wrong, how we should treat people, how, how should war be used, how should sex be used. There is a, a collision of moral standards amongst cultures, let alone then we should expect to see a collision of of moral standards between our culture and the culture of the world and that of God. So that works itself out like this. There will be some things in culture where God says, well done, that area of your culture, that, that, that heart, that mood within your society reflects something of my heart and character. And there'll be other areas, therefore, we'd expect that, that God would say, guys, you've got that one wrong. You're missing the things that you're pursuing, the things that you love and enjoy and go after and uphold, actually I don't approve those things. Let me give you an example. You see, some cultures, and usually it would be more traditional cultures, would actually strongly agree with the Bible's perspective on what sex is and where it should be used, with the Bible's um, sexual ethic, if you like. And they will uphold and applaud the Bible when it comes to this. And they will say, that's fantastic teaching in the Bible. We utterly agree that sex is for one man and one woman in marriage. But those cultures might, when it comes to areas of forgiveness and grace, which the Bible also upholds and say, hey, look, this is what God is like. They'd say, that's ridiculous. You can't live life based on forgiving people and and showing people grace. That's not a way to live. In British culture, that's reversed completely the other way around. So at large, our culture would say, we love the teaching on grace and forgiveness. We applaud it. We think it's fantastic teaching. Jesus was incredible to speak like that. But hold on a minute, when it comes to the Bible on sexual ethics, don't you dare for a moment try and step on that area of our life and say, you can't have it how you want. So there's a a collision of morality and ethics between cultures and God, and we'd expect that. Not only that, but even within our own culture, we disagree with ourselves. So if you just go back 50 years ago, if you were around then, you will know that the attitudes towards sexual ethics was vastly different from how it is today. Not only that, but our view in our culture is vastly different from about 6 billion of the world's 7 billion people that are alive today. And likely, our view of sexual ethics today in our culture, in our British culture, will be vastly different from what it is in another 50 years' time. And so... I think that to go from saying we're right as a culture, that our culture's attitude towards sex and sexuality is right, that in 21st century British society we have happened to land on the correct sexual ethic and that that conflicts with God, therefore God cannot exist, or therefore I use that to to, um, refute the claims of Jesus, who he is, that he lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven is logically, 
untenable. It, it can't work. That can't logically flow. That just because there's a conflict of ethics, therefore I don't believe in Jesus. So, let me just push this a little bit more for us. My question then isn't, is it possible that God cares about who I sleep with? But rather, isn't it in actual fact that it's our sexual ethic that needs to be questioned and challenged in our society? You see, our sexual ethics are based on a very deep, unprovable, and controversial convictions over what sex actually is. You see, when we're talking about why does God care, we're not just saying here's sex and here's two people with different opinions of where it should be worked out. What's actually going on underneath that is that you have two groups of people or or varying ideas and they're fundamentally disagreeing over what sex actually is. Let me illustrate this for you. If you were to go to town this morning and conduct your own fun survey in the high street of town and say, can I just ask you a question? What do you think sex is? And if that person was kind enough to answer you without slapping you, they would likely answer, if they're a secular person, that is, they're, they're just, they don't believe in God, they're not, they don't take their moral standard from God's moral standard, they would likely answer something like this. It's an enjoyable, intimate experience between two consenting adults. Now, if that is your view of what sex is, of course, that's going to drive where and how you think sex can be used. So if it's purely just an experience between two consenting adults, then any two consenting adults or more can agree, hey, let's have sex. And that's how it works. If you were to ask the same question to a a traditional culture, maybe an African culture or an Eastern Asian culture or a Middle Eastern culture, that same question of, hey, guys, what do you think sex is? They would give you an answer along the lines of this, not always, but typically... It is an act of union between two adults already joined in lifelong commitment to each other, which produces physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, and children. Therefore, if you follow through, that's their understanding of sex. They're saying, therefore, sex is for the place of marriage. Now, if you go to the Bible and you ask the Bible, hey, Bible, what's your view? What's God's view? What's God's vision for sex and morality around sexual issues, the Bible says, yes, sex is that. Sex is union between a husband and wife already, already married, physical enjoyment, marital cohesion, and children. But even more fundamentally, the Bible pushes that even more. It goes deeper, and it says not only that, but actually sex is a picture of Jesus and his bride. If you want to find out what that looks like, go to Ephesians 5. We often will quote that at weddings. Not just marriage, we often say marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, but sex too is a picture of Jesus and his bride. Sex is a key fundamental part of expressing what marriage looks like in the context of a husband and wife. You see, sex, in what it is, expresses oneness, unity, togetherness, otherness, faithfulness, surrender, and fruitfulness. And these are the things that define, these are, if you like, these are the pictures of how God relates to his people, the church. Those words, you could take them and you could say, yeah, that's what it's like to be in relationship with God. It's precisely what it's like to be in relationship with God. But in each case, what you believe sex is drives how how you believe it's to be used and by whom. So when people have different views around who gets to have sex or not? 
What's really happening is there's a disagreement about what sex is. So my first point to answer that question, the big overarching question this morning of why does God care about sex was this. Everybody cares. Everybody cares about who gets to have sex or not. So why would God not care? Secondly, we said, if God has a timeless ethical standard, wouldn't you expect it to challenge every society in some way on some issues? The third step for a moment is I just want to turn the question around and ask, therefore, as a culture, why do we care so much? Why are the stakes so high for us in 21st century British culture when it comes to sex and sexuality? Why is there such a strong reaction to the biblical teaching of the church that sex is man, woman in marriage, excluding all other possibilities? So just for a moment, suppose you can say, okay, the idea that God actually cares about how sex is used, okay, I can get there. Or the idea that his understanding or his expectation of it is different from ours and ours is different from every other human being, I can kind of get there. But I do think it's worth pushing this question of why do we care so much about our right to have sex? You see, let me unpack this for a moment. People in our town, let alone the nations of the world. People in our town are willing to abstain from all kinds of different things. The way they spend money, the way they use their body, how they, what they can eat or not, whether they can eat meat, whether they can drink alcohol, what they do with their time, whether they have a foreskin or not. People choose to abstain from all kinds of things based on what their highest authority is. So if you meet a Jew, they will abstain from certain things in life. If you meet a Muslim, they will abstain from other certain things in life. If you meet a vegan, they will abstain from weird other things that they abstain from in life. But the thing is, if you met them in the street, you wouldn't think that's weird. It wouldn't challenge you. You'd say, well, of course, that's who they are. Being part of their community means there are certain restrictions that are applied that recognize people as part of their community. And most of the time, most people in our society would accept that and receive it. Say, that's just part of the package. But why is it that when it comes to the church and Christians' commitment to to love God and honor him and his word, that when it comes to the Christians saying part of the deal of being in the community of God and a follower of Jesus is that actually we believe there are restrictions around sex. Why is it that suddenly people react to that and say, no way. I'd be prepared to give up all kinds of stuff, pretty much anything to follow Jesus, but don't step onto the area of sex. Don't tell me who I can and cannot sleep with. Even when those limits, as Sam was saying, result in the flourishing of people and society and human life, there's a shout that comes back and says, no way, we don't receive it. Now, why is that true? Why is it true that people will be prepared to sacrifice all kinds of things, yet not sex? Now, of course, I can't answer for everybody in Swindon. But I do wonder if this is the reason. You see, for our culture to be able to have sex with whoever I want, however I want, whenever I want, is seen as the highest good. The good life. The best that you can have. It's what what it really means to be human. If you want to have a full life as a human being, you need to have sex. And if you're single and not having sex, and there's something weird with you. And if you're at college or school and you're not having sex, and you're the guys that sit on the table in the corner that nobody talks to because you're abnormal 
That would be the, the, the vast attitude in our society. Look at the movies that come out, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Hey, everybody, it would be really odd, wouldn't it, to be 40 and be a virgin because sex is what it means to be human. That's the, that's the driven idea, concept within our culture, that sex is the highest thing to be attained. And therefore, because it's our highest authority or, or nearly enough our highest authority, anything that comes against it and seeks to attack it or undermine it or say you can, you can't, people will begin to defend. People will begin to, to fight back and push back and say, no, you can't attack that. In that sense, it's easy to say that for our society, our culture, sex has become a god. Sex has become a god and people worship at the altar of sex. And therefore, we'll do anything to say we want to keep having sex with whoever we want. Let me just give you an illustration of this. And I say this with complete grace. And I don't want to pull the rug from under anybody's feet with this comment. So therefore, I want to have sex with whoever I want. And when it results in babies that I don't want, I will choose that it's okay to abort that baby. Because my right to have sex, the God I worship is sex. I worship God, not babies. And therefore... I will terminate a pregnancy because I'm worshipping at the altar of sex. You see, the stakes are high in this. Culture at large says you cannot challenge this area. As I said, sex in our culture is a qualifier of you as a person. And so to be single and not sleeping around is a very strange concept in our culture. But the Christian story, the story of Sam, the story of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and countless single people in the Bible and countless Christians throughout history and even in this church community is that far be it from it being abnormal to not have sex in your life, it is perfectly brilliant to be single. The Bible upholds singleness as a great thing and says you don't need to have sex to be a fully-fledged human being who is flourishing in life with relationships and intimacy and love. Sex does not define you as a person. The Bible upholds singleness and says, this is great. Our culture does not believe that. It says you need to have sex to lead a fulfilled life. Just a couple more minutes. I just want to close the circle on this. You see, it's not just a question of why does God say who I can and can't sleep with. It's an issue of our understanding of what sex is. But it's not only that either... It's also a debate of can people, re- in our culture, it's a debate of can people really be fulfilled without sleeping around? Can you really lead a fulfilled life? And many Christians, and many Christians in this church stand up and go, absolutely. I'm single, pursuing Jesus, choosing to be celibate in my pursuit of Jesus. And absolutely, you can live a fulfilled life, relationally, emotionally, psychologically fulfilled. But society at large would say, no, 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 you can't live a fulfilled life. And so to say that to our culture, sex can be used in some contexts and not others, people, when they hear that, they'll, they'll hear that, but they'll also hear this. They'll hear you saying, not only sex is limited, but you can never be a true human being. You can never have a full life. That's what people will hear in our society when you say sex is restricted. The Bible presents a very different picture of what life looks like as a single person 
when we live in the restrictive freedoms of the Bible. It's not restrictive in the sense of God's holding the best from you. The restrictions that God gives, actually far from that, they produce life in abundance for us. So let me finish by closing, saying this. Following Jesus costs us. For some, it will cost how you use your money. For some, it will cost how you treat your children. For some, it will cost the type of work you do. For some, it will cost where you go, the, the options you live. Because when I become a follower of Jesus, I say to Jesus, I die to myself and I now live for you. Therefore, my preferences, my wants, my desires, I'm now no longer living for those. But I've chosen instead to, to die to that, to turn from that, to turn to you and live how you say life should be. And that, for some people, might mean that becoming a follower of Jesus actually does cost them their sex life. For, so for a single person that's sleeping around with one or many people, or, may, or for, a, or for a, a homosexual person, it could well cost them their sex life. For a couple who are, who are married and, and therefore in marriage sleeping together, when they become Christians... For that person, that won't cost them their sex life. But for different people, it's not just sex. Following Jesus costs us all kinds of different things. See, the grace of God is free, but Jesus says, come die, die to yourself, and now follow me. It's not, I follow you, Jesus, and I'll carry on doing what I like. It's no, I follow you, and now you're Lord of my life. So for many people, the words, follow Jesus come across like this, give up on sex. And for them, that's too high a cost. But when you encounter the Jesus of the Bible, just as Sam Albury has, just as many in this room have, you encounter his love and his forgiveness and his grace and acceptance and mercy and his radical inclusiveness. The, the guy who went to the fringes of society and said, I love you and I'm here for you. He went for people from every orientation and station of life. The the people in his day who were the outcasts on the fringe of society, rejected by the religious elite. Jesus went to them and said, I love you. God loves you. I'm demonstrating what the love of God looks like to you. You encounter his love, his forgiveness. And I tell you, it causes you in your life to make that decision to say, yes, for you, Jesus, I will lay down everything to worship and follow you, even including my own sex life. It's a challenge. I realize that. I understand the objection to the Christian faith. But I would just want to say to that, I I don't think logically it's not a strong objection to the Christian faith. It's actually challenging our culture and the God that our culture broadly worships at. I just want to say it's absolutely possible to live a fulfilled, richly alive, single life Without sex, you don't have to have sex to be a fulfilled person. And I hope that those three steps help some of you this morning just engage with that question or, or discuss and debate it further with friends and colleagues. God loves you. He loves people. Whether you're gay or straight. Whether you're male or female whether you're promiscuous or monogamous, adulterous, whether you're celibate, God loves you. So do we. So do we love you. And God calls you this morning to say, hey, would you turn from all of that 
your old life, your old way of living, and die to that and come and follow me and, and live by my set of how I see life to be lived out. And I promise you, God says, I've got life and life in abundance for you. He's not withholding. He invites you, come, die to yourself and follow him. Hey, we want to invite you and we want to say the same thing. Come and follow Jesus. Lay down your life. It will be the best adventure you have ever lived. It is far from loss. It is only gain. God loves you. We really aren't interested in who you're sleeping with. That's not, a, that's not our driving force as a church. What we are interested in, in is that you encounter Jesus Christ. You know, when you encounter him, and, and we want you to be able to find out who Jesus is and what he's like. His death, his life, his resurrection and ascension. And then maybe if you get to the point of saying, I believe in that guy, then down the road we can get to talking about what does life now look like? Money, relationships, marriage, work, sex. We can talk about that down the road, but we don't need to start there because it is all about Jesus. And I tell you, following Jesus is the best life you could have. It's not the easiest life. It means there's costs daily. And I know people even in this room right now who are making that decision to daily say, I'm choosing to be single and celibate. It's a cost. It's a battle. And so I just want to finish by praying for us. Father, I thank you as Motti just shared in the first meeting that you are the God of amazing, abundant grace. And so that for any who here this morning are living life in a way that doesn't line up with how you've called us to live, for those of us that have fallen in the area of sexual sin, for those today who are here and gay or have friends and family who are gay, for whom this is a challenge, Lord, I thank you. You're a God of love. You're a God who encounters us at our place that we are currently in. And I thank you Lord, that you just say, come and follow me. I thank you, you're the God who is, who is abundant in grace and mercy. And I thank you that you are the God of second chances. That Lord, where we've blown it time and time again, you say, hey, come on, come and follow me. Go for it again. And so Lord, we, we just lift this to you. We say, Lord, may Gateway be a, a, a church full of your grace in this area. Lord, and I pray that even this message would be hope for many who are battling around this area. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. Amen.